This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Draft Deeper on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. Thank you so much for joining us on this wonderful Monday morning edition of the show. As always, I'm joined by my colleague co-host, Maxwell Baumbach. Maxwell, we're, we, we've been out of a rhythm a little bit in terms of doing our lottery team breakdowns, but we're returning back to our bread and butter, getting into all of the fun, sicko stuff that we like to, breaking down, analyzing individual picks, team needs, the whole the whole nine. Are you ready for a fun episode tonight? How you doing? I'm I'm more than ready for this one. We're covering a couple different teams, teams that are like in in very precarious positions, we should say, and could really change their fortunes if they hit a home run with these picks and conversely could be continued continue to be stuck in a not so great place if things don't pan out. So what's what's interesting, as you alluded to, about some of the teams that we're discussing on this episode is that when we move towards the top end of the lottery, right, those top three or four teams that we will definitely get to on our next episode, when you move there, though, there's a lot of bad to talk about in terms of what's currently going on. And it's more of the mindset with those teams of it's just it's strictly BPA, like we just got to inject talent like anywhere we can get it. There's usually not a ton of good going on. With the teams that we're talking about tonight, I get... So we're talking about the Washington Wizards, the Orlando Magic, and the Detroit Pistons. I get the Pistons had a bad record, but they still have a lot of interesting pieces in place. The Orlando Magic were one of the most competitive teams in the Eastern Conference, pound for pound, when you actually go back and watch their games, particularly in the second half of the year. And the Wizards, albeit a lot of their fits up and down the roster are clunky, the talent is still there to achieve a better outcome than, than what they did, which was a 35-47 and 47 record in the Eastern Conference. And that's certainly where we'll start. But that's what makes these discussions tonight so fascinating, is that there are good things we can point to and potential pillars in place. Now it's sort of you have not just a mid-first-round pick or a late-first-round pick or a few seconds. You have a lottery pick to sort of help you build around those pillars what are you going to do with those lottery picks to, to essentially accelerate and ultimately rocket your team forward into a better position next season? So we're going to start with the Washington Wizards. Like I said, 35 and 47 record last year. They currently hold the eighth and the 59th overall picks in the draft. Yes, it's draft deeper. We will talk about that 59th pick. You better believe it. But obviously we have to start at eight. And when you take a look at this team, Maxwell, their projected depth chart next year like I said, there's a lot of pieces in place. Monte Morris at the point guard spot. You obviously have Bradley Beal there. You have a few wings like Denny Avdia and Corey Kispert. Kyle Kuzma and Chris Asporzingis are both on player options, but you would figure Washington's going to do whatever they can to try and bring those guys back. And then more on the bench side, you have DeLon Wright, our guy Johnny Davis, our mm-hmm. no-ceilings darling Johnny Davis last year, and then Daniel Gafford. So yeah. 
there's a lot of pieces there's there talent. To, to work like, with. Yeah, there's like a weird degree of depth for a team that is considered widely to be bad. Exactly. So if we go into this with the mindset that Kyle Kuzma and Chris Porzingis again are likely to get new deals, they'll they'll probably be back in the fold. At the very least, one of those guys will be back in the fold. What are some of the needs that you think exist on this Washington Wizards roster? Like just from what you're able to gather from last season, where yeah. do you think they need to build out with and, and focus on with a lottery pick? Um, I, I really would honestly, I know that we're like, these teams don't necessarily swing for the fences. I, I am still swinging for the fences if I'm the Wizards because I think you've okay. got enough everywhere, right? Like you've got enough playmaking with with Morris and Beal. With Kispert, you've got a shooter. Kuzma can shoot. He has some up and down years. Denny is not quite where I hoped he would be on that front, but you've got Porzingis. So like he kind of balances that out, allows Denny to, to play on the floor. Your big man situation is pretty good. I, I know Porzingis has had a lot of injuries over the years, but like him and Gafford, is like a really nice kind of pairing at the big spots. So I, I don't think big is like a, a real need for them, but there's nowhere where it's like, well, I don't want to draft over that guy. Cause even with Beal, it's like, he's getting up there and, you know, how, how much longer is he going to attain, you know, this level of play? And then you could even argue like a six, four kind of combo guard, like how, how valuable even is that? Do you want him there forever? Whatever. So at the end of the day, for me, it's, it's a roster with a lot of solid NBA players on it, but there's nobody that I'm like concerned about drafting over or, or giving up some minutes to a player. And I think, when you mentioned Johnny Davis, like a real concern is when you have a team that has a lot of NBA players on it, are you going to have a coaching staff that's willing to foster the development of these younger players and give them, yep. give them some minutes. That to me is almost as big a concern as anything. Cause when you want to compete every year, it makes it tricky to, to balance the player development side of things at the same time. Unless you have a Corey Kispert where it's kind of like the safe guy where it's like, I thought that was a good pick. But like you know what Corey Kispert is. He's he's a solid athlete who can shoot threes and is gonna be okay on defense. And that's yeah, and he got it, he's got his legs underneath him last year. He really yeah. started to pull his weight as a starter in the lineup, mm-hmm. right? Like I would I read off Danny Avdia as a starter, and then normally that that's who I would have thought, but they did make a move to go to Kispert, and it certainly opened up the floor for a lot of the other guys they have on the roster. And and that's someone who, like you said, you can plug him in. He's not going to necessarily take away from what you want to do, regardless of which direction you want to build out from. But in the case of someone like Johnny Davis, it was clear from the start, even in summer league, he just did not have his sea legs underneath him yet. Right. And that that's mm-hmm. not to say that he's going to be a bad player because he showed enough positive signs in the G league with capital city go-go. And then when he got opportunities, you know, in, in what you affectionately call Mickey mouse March. And then in yeah. April, he did get opportunities to prove that there's more to his game, more of what we saw from him in Wisconsin. And he mm-hmm. took advantage of those opportunities. So yes, there's talent there, but to your point, if this is a team that's expected to compete for the playoffs, how many minutes are you really giving to Johnny Davis each and every night to sort of say, go explore the studio space. Let's figure mm-hmm. out what you can do versus what's your role that you can play, you know, 16, 18 minutes a night, whatever the case may be on a contending team. So they do need to figure out what direction they want to go with this roster. But to me, while I do agree with you that there aren't necessarily players who I'm looking at and say, no, I wouldn't draft over you. I do think there's some clear needs for this team. So their perimeter defense has continued to be awful, right? The last few years has been really bad. 
Well, it's small, then, so small at the guard spots is the other thing yep. too. Like with Morrison Beal, it's like that's that's tough no matter who's behind him. And exactly. Then Kispert too is like not. He's like I said, he can be okay when he's on, but exactly. And and one of the one of the important things I think we're seeing, especially in the playoffs, is listen. Th- there are plenty of teams who have gotten away with having one smaller guy on the court. Like if you are exceptional at that position, right? Let's say you have a smaller point guard. He can hit perimeter shots at a very high level. He's a low mistake player. He's at least tough as nails on defense. We talked about like Fred Van Vliet, for example, before we got on this podcast. If you have a guy like that, you can play him in that lineup, but you do have to have size around him at the other positions to where you can't have multiple guys that the opposing offense can target at the same time. And with a combination in that backcourt like Morris and Beal, Beal once upon a time actually wasn't a bad defender, but the injuries have hampered him in a way where he just does not move the same on the court period, at least on that side of the ball. And then Monte Morris has never exactly been a standout defender in the NBA. And then, yeah, like you said, you throw in the Kispert equation, you're talking about your whole perimeter line that's supposed to be guarding the three-point line. And it's just that, that defensive intensity, that effort, that length, that athleticism, it's just not there. So they need more of that. The other thing that they kind of need, Max, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, where the Wizards are at right now, I get Bradley Beal's kind of been that guy in the past, not necessarily the guy who you want doing this for 40 minutes a night in the present. They don't really have a standout guy that I point to on the roster as like, yep, he's going to break down the defense and consistently create something on every single possession. Yeah, that's something that they need. Because even like Monte Morris is more just like, he's old reliable right like he's just like a steady steady low mistake like low turnover kind of guard but yeah he's not like a true creator he's not going to cut into the teeth of the defense and get deep in the paint and set guys up and whatever like he's just he's very solid and very reliable but yeah they don't have like yeah that like constant paint threat who can really finish because even with like Beal like Beal's like a little slippery and can get inside but he's yep. not like yeah it's just not his, his he's bad. not doing that for 40 minutes a night anymore. no like he's just not and and Kyle Kuzma's not that guy Kyle Kuzma's a shot maker but he's mm-hmm. more of a spot up guy I'm gonna create something off a straight line drive he's not that creative sort of I'm gonna pick and pro break down the defense at multiple levels and figure something out and then Porzingis is either a trailer a trailer jump shooter at this point or he's a post-up guy so again the options from that perspective are very limited on this roster. So hopefully with this eighth overall pick, they can find someone who maybe he's not doing it immediately right out of the gate. Cause I never want to put great expectations on a rookie, but someone who at least has the traits to say, if we put him on this developmental path, he can become this type of guy for us eventually, right? Maybe next to a Johnny Davis or next to some of the other long-term pieces that they have on the roster. So usually with this type of exercise, we pick out about three to four names for each pick that, that we're suggesting, Hey, this guy might actually be of value for the pick and could really contribute in X amount of areas for the specific lottery team. So I have a few names picked out. I I know for a fact, we're going to have some overlap, but why don't you start throwing out a name or two in terms of who you really think the wizard should look at with the eighth overall pick. Yeah, so I I kind of think they should go best available. Okay. Um but based on kind of how I see the board breaking out, I think there are three guys that could realistically be there in this range. Um 
they are Asar Thompson, Taylor okay. Hendricks, and Jairus Walker. Is okay. there one of those guys that jumps out to you? Is like, well, let's get into that guy. Well, Asar Thompson would be the crossover that we have. I actually okay. tonight I I did not write down Taylor Hendricks and Jairus Walker because I do you think I'm of the firm belief that I think they're going to be gone. I yeah, I kind of do too. We've also been talking about Jairus as a possible fall guy in this mm-hmm. class, so that we can certainly get to him in a second. Absolutely. Asar is a great crossover piece and his fit with this team is fascinating because he's believed to be this more off ball creator type where, you know, he, he's going to work cutting to the basket off the ball. He's going to work in, in some different screen actions, but he's going to be someone who's going to catch and then make a quick decision. Not someone who's operating at the top of the floor, having to read multiple levels of the defense and break it down like his brother and men. Yet, He does have those secondary passing instincts to where you see how quick he can make a decision with the ball and what he's able to do when he gets to certain spots, which, by the way, he can. His handle is as good as a men's, in in my opinion, right? I think he can take space in a lot of the same ways. Maybe he's not quite as explosive off that first step, but I still think he's getting to where he wants to go. He's more of a threat when he takes that space to rise up and, and hit a jump shot more than a men right now, right? We have questions about what happens when he gets all the way to the rim, but if he's able to take mid-range space effectively and then either rise up for a jump shot or kick the ball out to where he needs to go, you're at least putting him in a position where he's making these quick decisions with the ball and he's not sort of being the stopper on offense, right? He's not the guy where the possession's going to end because he doesn't know what to do when he takes that space. No, maybe he's not getting all the way to the basket, but it's about making the most of what you can get and what your strengths are. And I think Asor is a player who can do that. And quite frankly, there's a number of players in this draft class who I feel like can do that at a good to great level. And we may underrate that because some of their other aspects of their offensive game are lacking. Is that kind of how you feel about Asor? Are you a little bit higher on his evaluation mm-hmm. that a little bit lower? Like, where are you at with him when you think about no, it? No, th- I think all that's fair. I, I'm a little bit more optimistic with him when it comes to, like, the half-court rim finishing stuff. Like, I've, I've made it a point to go out of my way to, to note that, like, I think a man is way ahead of him on that front right now. Um, but I do think his frame is going to fill out in a way that he doesn't have to do as much fancy stuff as he mm-hmm. maybe did in OTE. Um, he'll be able to get better angles in the rim. He embraces physicality a lot more than a man, which is going to help, too. Um, but if you do look at the guys who get better at rim finishing at the next level, it is athletes. It is, it's like always guys that like really soar up and are kind of like growing into their body and figuring that sort of stuff out. Um, and he fits that profile. Like Josh green is like one of the biggest examples of like, if you look at his pre NBA finishing numbers, they were bad. He's figured it out in the NBA. Asar, like same, same kind of dude to an extent. Um, I, I think his shot is a lot better, especially off the catch. I think he hunts it a little bit more. Um, and I really think that just from a defensive standpoint, I'm a lot more bought into what he's going to bring on that end than a man Bingo. in terms yep. of just his consistent ability to buy in, keep guys in front of him and make plays. His recognition on defense, I think is quicker than a men's. And I think he's a little bit more refined as far as when he doesn't, doesn't gamble. Um, so I think from that standpoint alone, just like the fact that like you can play him with Beal, you've got that extra playmaking punch out there still and he can maybe take a tougher defensive assignment. I don't know if that's going to be something he does out of the gate, but I think long-term he's going to be a good defensive addition to their roster. 
Yep, I think he's already making strides in the physical department as far as his, mm-hmm. his development with his body's concerned, right? We've seen that with both him as well as a man in some of the, the offseason stuff we're witnessing. So I think that's a positive for his defensive upside as well as the rim finishing stuff long term. I think a lot of the rim finishing stuff with him and his brother, they just have to get more aggressive when it comes to when they actually get to the basket. What type of angle are they taking? Are they looking to finish you know, through a defender or going towards the basket or are they doing some of the the fancy, I'm going to kiss it off the glass, you know, while angling and contorting my body away versus going more inwards. And, and that type of stuff, I feel like can be cleaned up. It's sometimes it's not the easiest thing to clean up because when you get down to a certain point, it's more of like a mindset thing. Like I'm willing to take this contact. I'm willing to, to go at this defender regardless of what it means for me. I just want to get either get this basket to go or get to the line, you know, after hunting for the contact. And that that stuff, like I said, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But a SAR at least has the physical tools like you're talking about to take advantage of those opportunities. In my opinion, when he gets there, it's going to be more about his decision and what he chooses to do, not him being able to get those opportunities. And that's that's the most important thing to me at the end of the day. How do you feel about him as a decision maker overall? Like I kind of alluded to it in terms yeah. of how I feel he can be useful in the half court, but there's, mm-hmm. there's other people that are evaluating a sore and they want him to be more of a primary ball handler, like his brother or men. And while I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility for him, that's certainly not an experiment. I would want a sore to be participating in right out of the gate. I kind of want him to get more acclimated with the rest of the offense and how he fits in off ball. And then as he gets more comfortable as a shot maker from different levels on the floor, and that quick decision-making translates to results on an NBA floor, then we can start to experiment more with you and with the ball in your hands at the top and a pick and roll set. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think maybe it could be on the table. Like if, if everything comes up roses for him, like, yeah, maybe that could be something that he does down the road. It's Yeah, it's not like I would never just like turn the keys of the offense over to him. I, mm-hmm. I think you're you're closer to spot on. Where I might disagree with you a little bit, I don't, I don't think he has like the same – like you mentioned, like his handle being on the same level as a man. I think that might be true because a man is more creative with it, but it comes real loose at times where I think Asari is a little bit better command of the ball, but I don't think he's as creative and I don't think he's as quick witted. Like, I don't think he sees things at the same speed a man does. And I yep. think, that's I fair. like him a lot more like coming to a jump stop and just playing it a little bit slower, waiting for things to open up. Surve- he surveys a little bit more, which is fine. Like he's still super, super that's, advanced. For a that's kind of age. why I like him more than a men though. If I'm being completely honest, like I know you're in a man over in a SAR guy. I've the majority of this whole cycle, I've kind of been in a sore over a men guy, but I kind yeah. of want the player who's more, who's more measured and kind of okay. knows who he is and how he's operating in certain situations versus the guy who he may see things a few steps ahead, but there's also the chance that he miscalculates what he's seeing and he gets mm-hmm. a little too careless with, with the ball. We've seen that plenty from a man. I mean, going back and watching some of his turnovers at OTE, it's, it's, it can be pretty bad basketball times. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie, but if you are swinging for the fences, kind of like what you wanted to do for the Washington wizards. And you're talking about ultimate upside. If a man hits, there is a chance he's the second best player in this class. Like yeah, and I don't think there's a chance the a man falls this far is the other thing too. Like I, I, I think he's going to be well. too, too tantalizing to pass up where it does seem like there's now like more and more rumblings about like, oh, teams, teams, some teams like Asar better. I, I don't know if that's like real or if that's smoke or what. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I ultimately think Asar is like the secondary second side kind of guy is really, really exciting. Cause I, I do think to your point, his burst off the line is awesome. I think it's really good. And I do think his shot mechanics are a lot better than men's are. Like I, I do think there's a pretty significant difference in terms of how I feel about them as catch and shoot targets right yep. now. Um, and I, I think Asar is going to get there. I think he's going to be respectable at the very least. I, I would agree 100%. So, okay, we, we've had we've had our say about the Thompson Twins. So you also outlined both of the forwards for the Washington mm-hmm. Wizards. And if you take a look at some of the players, again, who are on this roster, I, I get that you've sort of outlined your, your major point to this, which is no one's stopping me from taking the best player on the board. But is there any shred of concern with either Taylor Hendricks or Jairus Walker? Feel free to go whichever directions, even talk about both players when yeah. you answer this question. Is there any shred of concern that you have players in front of them that deserve minutes like Abdia, like Kuzma, like Kispert, that, that you're kind of looking at either of these options and you go, well, there may be a little bit of a log jam. How much are these guys going to be able to develop mm. within the context of the rest of the roster? So my fear with, Jairus would be that if Jairus I think Jairus wherever he ends up is going to play right away like I think he's so trustworthy that like he's going to be a rookie that plays pretty much regardless of what happens um my fear with Jairus is that if Jairus doesn't shoot Jairus looks a lot like Denny Avdia <laughs> like like you know what I mean like would you agree with that or do you think I that's- I, I I do agree there so okay. it's funny I think some of the optimal outcomes that we want to brainstorm for Jairus mm-hmm. actually kind of look like what Denny Avdia does in a half court setting at times where he's like point Denny, giving mm-hmm. the keys a little bit, operating some of these spots. Like I get that Jairus isn't going to be operating out of like a high pick and roll like Denny can, for example, but like some of these other quicker actions where you wanted to make a decision with the ball in his hands, you know, off a short roll around the elbows, you know, you know, coming off a set, off a screen on the wing or, or making a decision out of the corner like a lot of those different areas you kind of want Jairus to be doing a lot of those same things it's kind of funny yeah yeah so that's like my concern is I think there's like a little bit more overlap there where with Hendricks there's a little bit less and yep. it's just I, and like I don't think Hendricks is as ready and like I've I go back and forth on like who's higher between the two of them which I'm sure is an extremely unpopular opinion here at no ceilings where it's it's Jairus headquarters but um, I think Hendricks has like a quote unquote, like safer path just because he's very big in a jump shooter. And I think he's going to defend multiple positions and offer some of the weak side room protection stuff, even if he's not as savvy as Jairus is. Um, and obviously like there's a, a world of difference as far as like ball skills and passing and things like that. Um, but I think that with Hendricks, there's a little bit less skill overlap because yeah, like I said, like a lot of this stuff they have Denny do is kind of similar to how you'd be, you'd want to utilize Jairus. And like only so many guys can have those touches that like you can play Denny and Taylor together. And I don't love the idea of playing Denny and Jairus together. Mm-hmm. And that's not a reason to not swing higher. If you think Jairus is like a markedly better prospect and you're making that pick. Um, I mean, you're kind of with, with Taylor, you're kind of going to be splitting the, very similar shot types between him, Kuzma, and Kisper. That's more of the mm-hmm. player that he's going to be for the Wizards, which teams want to have multiple of those guys in the lineup at the same time, right? Like you need the floor space from both corners, or you need the floor space from corner opposite wing. You need legitimate shooters in those positions to take advantage of 
anything that's created out of a high pick and roll set, which again, that's still ultimately, I think what the wizards want to do with, with the Beal Porzingis combo or Beal, you know, throw whatever forward or big man in there. They still want to run those types of sets. But if you're telling me that at any point in time, you can have any of the two of Kuzma Hendricks and Kispert on the floor, it makes a lot of those play types the the outcomes for them to be much higher or, or much better anticipated versus playing you know a, a dual forward lineup like you talked about with like an Avdia and uh, and a Jaris. And here's here's the other thing too. Like if you're Washington, if you're worried about the Jaris shot at all, which I think again, I think compared to like the consensus center crew, I'm a little bit more worried about Jaris's shot than everybody else. Um, if Jaris is not shooting, and then you have a young core of like him, Avdia, and Johnny Davis. That's a little scary. That is that's scary. A, that's yep. a little scary. If those guys are all like, if that's your young court, it's three guys that have wing size and don't shoot. It's like, I just, I just don't know where you're going with that. So I believe in Jairus shooting ultimately long-term. I believe in his, to what extent, what, what percent and how many a game, not to like put you on the spot, but like, I, I, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Like what, when you say, I think Jairus is going to shoot, like, what do you mean? So, so we've had this conversation before, actually, mm-hmm. in, in text messages when we talk about what, yeah. what do we want Jairus to be in the NBA? Mm-hmm. I think he's going to shoot a decent percentage, but I don't think it's going to be on high volume. And I don't mm-hmm. want him to, to just be spotting up taking, you know, five, six, seven threes a game. That's not what I want him doing. I want Jairus involved in almost everything that's going on inside of the three-point line very similar to how Bam Adebayo has been involved with a lot for the Miami Heat. Now, there are some differences between their games. Like, you and I agree, like, their movement patterns are not the mm-hmm. same. But I do think Jairus can handle the ball. I think Jairus going to get to a point where he's handling the ball at a very similar level to someone like a Bam Adebayo. Someone and I think it's where- worth noting, too, like, if you were not uh, a pre-college film guy, like, Jairus, they had Jairus pop, like, every time he screened this year. And, like, that is not going to be what... I think nor nor do I want that being like that's what I'm saying like I think like the short roll stuff is like what you want where it's like this is a freight train rolling downhill because when you watch the plays when he does roll it's like oh good now now with that though here's what you and I agree needs to change he needs to actually go all the way to the basket yes cut out taking a billion floaters (laughs) and and bricking a lot of them because I I think that's going to be a shot in his bag I do think that's something he's going to be able to go to and I'm glad he's very comfortable taking it but you need to leverage your close to six foot eight and shoes, you know, 249, 250 pound body. You need to deal out some punishment, get to the line and, and make it work, make those touches worthwhile versus giving the other team back X amount of possessions because you're just so willing to take this floater. But if you're missing all of them, you're not doing your team any favors, nor are you necessarily putting your team in an an opportune position to get rebounds off of those misses and get some putbacks and take advantage of of points scored otherwise, unless he is crashing the glass off those attempts and he's getting his own rebound. And that's how he's manufacturing some of his offense. Great. That's not something I want to live on at the same time. I want, I want Jairus either making a quick decision with the ball to go all the way to the basket. If the space is there on occasion, take that floater or take advantage of some of the passing vision that we've seen him have going back to high school, you know, doing a quick post up on somebody, putting his back to the basket, letting some of the doubles come to him and then making the quick decision out of that play type to keep the ball moving like that. That's some of the actions as well as more of the short roll stuff, you know, free free throw line and out towards the three point line. That's a lot of the stuff I want him involved in, not just spotting up 
five, six, seven times a game mm-hmm. for three or, or potentially more. Because if, if that's the player you're turning him into, the opposing defense, you are jumping up and down and you are yeah, living with that result want. 10 times out of 10. Yep. Yeah. But I, I will say just to like, to give the other side of this too, like with Taylor, like he is very thin and was very bad at the rim this year. So like if Taylor Hendricks is playing right away again, I, I, because of his athleticism, I do believe the rim finishing is going to turn at a certain point, but like what you're getting out of him, if you play him right away is mostly just going to be shooting. And then like, you hope that he's a good defender for a rookie. So like Jairus is probably offering you a lot more out of the gate. If that's a concern that you have, like if you want to keep up this, like, we're trying to make the play-in thing. Like, you 100% go Jairus. So here's the good news about both of those guys, though. If, if they do go in these positions where we're projecting them to go, they're still likely not going to playoff teams next year. Mm-hmm. So their opportunities become more bountiful, and their expectations become a little less in terms of what they have to be to keep playing X amount of minutes on the floor per night. If we're talking about these guys going to playoff situations, I would agree with you, Maxwell. I think Taylor Hendricks... It's certainly is not seeing, you know, 22, 26 minutes a night for a playoff team next year, mm-hmm. nor do I think that that's definitely a slam dunk fit for Jairus. Jairus to me really has to live up to the expectations we have for him defensively, right? If he comes in and he's not as versatile of a defender as we think he's going to be because of some of the things we've seen on tape going back to high school and then some of what I saw in person at Houston, some of what we see on the tape at Houston, if he's not that player, boy, it can get ugly for his early prospects pretty quick, right? That that to me, even more so than the shot, I think he needs to be that or else his rookie season could go a different direction. Yeah, I think I think what he will have in his back pocket is I think just his understanding Yep. of defensive Very rotations smart. and principles is going to be way ahead of a lot of other guys. Like the, the sort of Jairus naysayers. Um, and I, f- I feel like there's like a decent amount of like clips that I, I see going around on Twitter. Like the, the one that you see a lot is like the, the Taylor Hendricks blow by <laughs> clip of him. Like, I feel like I've seen 80 different people post it and it's like a fair clip. Like that is like a real concern with Jairus. Like sometimes like he can be a little upright, like he can be a little slow to react on the ball and whatever. But like just historically, I always like to just check my spreadsheets and just see how guys stack up historically. Both him and Hendricks are like monster, monster shot blockers. Yep. For players coming out of college. And here's like what their block percentage is for guys that you're kind of projecting to be a four is really, really good. So with Jairus, even if he has those moments where it's like, oh man, his on ball technique wasn't great there and things like that, I still think he's going to be so far ahead of the curve for most rookies as far as like just knowing what's going on in the court and the ability to react and get there and track the ball and make those plays. So we've had good conversations about the forwards, which we will Mm -hmm. certainly bring up some of those players as well. When we talk Mm -hmm. about our next team in the fold, the Orlando magic, you did not bring up any of the guards, however. And Mm -hmm. when I say guards, I mean, Anthony black case and Wallace and yeah, I'm going to toss you the wild card. I'm going to toss the, the Kobe Bufkin grenade in here. You didn't mention any of those guys in play for, for Washington. So I will ask you a, do you think any of those guards are worth Washington making the pick on them at number eight in the sense of they're going to come in and fit what Washington wants to do and help those guys get better and B, out of those guys, which one would you like the most for Washington? If you're choosing out of any of them. You're making a face like you don't want to yeah. take any of them for Washington. No, I Anthony Black is like the guard that I'm most interested in here. 
Okay. Um, I just think what he's going to give that. I know I was just like, well, well, you don't want to take a guy that doesn't shoot. Look at all these non-shooters. And I'm like, Anthony Black's my guy. Um, but uh, I think just what he's going to bring in terms of his selflessness, I think he'll kind of like fit in with what's there currently. And I think with Anthony Black, he's more of like a longer term project. And I know the project is usually thrown to guys that like don't know what they're doing. And he's the opposite of that. Um, but I think Anthony Black is the guy where like, you really want to foster the development, especially as far as the shooting and shooting off the dribble goes. Um, but I think there's ways for him to really bring value and contribute to this team right away in terms of what he can do as a playmaker, what he can do as a defender, uh, a defensive playmaker. And I think with his strength, there's a lot of sneaky ways that he can be utilized in an offense like that aren't really being talked about. I think, yeah, I mean, you look at like a, how many guys just like set screens in the NBA now. And it's like, you can do some sneaky screener stuff with Anthony black. Everyone is setting a screen. Everybody picks now during an NBA game. And with a guy who's that strong and that tough, I think there's a lot of value to like having another guy with ball handling skills and finishing skills that can do that kind of stuff and then make good decisions on the go. Um, I think a team is going to figure out how to use him and get a lot out of it. Um, and like he offensive rebounds, like he's good on putbacks. He's good on stuff like that. So, um, it's a little clunky just in terms of he's a rookie. He's kind of a guard and he can't shoot. Uh, but I think he's got the most upside out of any of them. And I think if you can get creative in terms of finding ways to just leverage what he can do as a decision maker and ball handler at his size, there's a lot of value he's going to bring gets to the free throw line a ton too. Yep. And you're a team that needs a little bit more rim pressure. So rim pressure and yeah, being able to break down a set defense. Anthony Black can do that because Anthony Black crosses over to his other hand and he's exploding off that step and he's he's breaking into the teeth of the defense at the drop of a hat. And like that's the type of rim pressure that I want to see on this Washington Wizards team, that dynamic that they they don't have, right? Who can give them that? If a man Thompson's not going to follow them in number eight, Anthony Black is the other name we'd look at. And how he operates as connective tissue, I, I wanted to make, there were a few guys I just wanted to go back and and, and refresh myself uh, around a little bit of their tape before we did this podcast. Anthony Black was one of them. The more I watch him, Maxwell, man, it, it is really hard to shake the Josh Giddy similarities. It, it's it's really hard to not look at him and be like, he's able to take the space. I get the set shot isn't the prettiest, but when he gets it off, you know the the amount of areas in which he is comfortable shooting the ball, whether whether the defense goes under. You know, when he is able to take space inside the arc out of a pick and roll set or out of a DHO, he will take those shots with confidence, which is what I want to see, right? I, I get the mechanics aren't the prettiest. I I don't always love the set shots, but if that's what's comfortable for him, chances are if that willingness is there, he's probably going to improve on that shot long term. And it's not like the shot was bad for him to begin with, right? The pull-up numbers actually weren't terrible. The three-point percentage, ultimately, when you shake out a few things, wasn't terrible, right? So I think those things are there for him. I do buy in his scoring at the rim. I think he's going to be a better at-rim finisher in the NBA than given credit for you mentioned the, the ability to draw free throws and then all of the passing that comes out of his, his drives, you know, his kickouts, you know, some of the stuff he can do in a screen and roll game or a screen and pop game or being involved in those ways, you know, screening for somebody else to get open, coming off, catching the ball, redirecting to where it needs to go. There's so many different ways you can use a guy like Anthony black. I just buy him to make the winning plays that his team will need 
at the end of the day. And that's why I would not be afraid to take somebody like him at number eight, because I do think he fits a lot of the things that the Washington Wizards need. The, the one thing that does concern me, I'm not absolutely in love with his perimeter defense overall, but I do think he's going to carry his weight on that end and, and be good and certainly be good enough. And then you mentioned his anticipatory skills, you know, his, his awareness, he can read passing lanes and force turnovers and then get out on the break. I, I, I'm not in, how do you feel about his ball screen defense? I'm not in love with that's, that. I was going to, that was exactly where I is where I was going to go. It's like, that's like the one area of his defense where I'm just a little like, Am I missing something here? Am I missing something? Because like everyone talks about him, like it's like this elite, elite defender, and I think, I think he's very clever, and I think yes. yeah, it's it's more about like knowing how to make plays. But some of the screen navigation stuff can be a little bit wonky. I'm hoping that that's one of those things that maybe hasn't been coached to him a ton. Um, but yeah, just some of his habits. Yeah, into yeah, to your point, like the anticipation, the way that he'll position his body, he'll kind of let guys get around too easily. He'll give them too much ground. He'll try to force a player a certain way, but give them way too much space in that direction. Allow guys to get them on their hip. Like just a lot of like little things defensively where it's like, you don't usually see great defenders do this he, stuff, he, but he, he, does, he does a lot. Areas that- I, he, he does a lot to try and get through and, and, and blow up the screen, even when he probably shouldn't be versus saying, all right, you know what? I lost this battle. Let me just sag off. Let me try and play mm-hmm. the roller behind me and tag him and, 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 and operate that way versus I'm going to just try to keep going through this play and trying to make something happen against the ball handler. And then, you know, as you're talking about the wrong windows given up, that guy has the angle to do whatever he wants to do. And then Anthony Black's kind of, you know, lost out in the wind, not knowing, you know, what, what, what the hell just happened? What could have I done better on this play? I, I saw too many of those when I was watching his screen roll defense. And it's why I'm not in love with him being the player who you know, teams hunt him, they put him in like 15 ball screen actions in a row. And that's, that's the output. You, you kind of have to be careful a little bit in terms of how you play him defensively. But again, you know, we're, we're talking about small potatoes at the end of the day for all the other positive things that he does on the court. In my opinion, if you don't love the shot, I get it. But if you are buying into the shot long-term, like I think you and I are, then why not have like a top 10, 11, 12, whatever great on this guy and be very comfortable taking him in the lottery. Um, Kobe Bufkin. Before we move on to the Orlando magic, we have to have the Kobe Bufkin conversation. So I know Metcalf was very in on him from the jump because that man just watches too much Michigan basketball and any Michigan prospect, he's going to be in on them before any of us. That's just the, the, the course of life. But he was talking to us a while ago and he said, you know, who could be the Dale and Terry of this draft class, a guard who just yeah. rises up out of nowhere. And all of a sudden we're talking about him near the lottery. It's it's going to be Kobe Bufkin. And I was like, Kobe Bufkin's had some good moments. Kobe Bufkin had a good first half of the year. He didn't do anything in my opinion that made him jump to me. That's like, this is definitely a 2023 guy. Like I need to have him in this section of my board. I need to be ranking him. But then we get to the second half of the year, especially when Jet has to miss a few games in that late January to early February stretch where Kobe's got to take over the line share of the offense. He has to be the guy in the perimeter to make things happen. And he has to be the guy who's either, you know, 
the, the bailout guy off of Hunter Dickinson, or he has to be the guy to set up Hunter Dickinson. He needs to be the straw that stirs the drink for the offense. And especially at the end of the year, Maxwell, he did a damn good job doing it. That man, I'm watching some of these games. I'm going back and watching some of them later in the year, and I'm finding zero flaws in terms of what he was doing later in the year. Not early on. I'm talking about later in the I year. I know. The zero flaws thing to me, though. Like, I feel like I've seen a lot of Kobe Bufkin's got no flaws. And to me, it's like... No, 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 no. I, no, 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 no. If no, 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 no. there were no flaws at the end of the season. No, 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 no. We, we, can, we, can, we can talk about some of the concerning things to me. But I'm talking about, like... When I say flaws, I'm talking, like, major red flags. Like, this is exactly why I wouldn't be drafting this guy at a certain point. Like... There's nothing to me about his game that strikes me as I don't see a legitimate pathway in which this is going to improve because I think a lot of it comes back to his, he, you know, he, he's tall for, for a guard. He measured in pretty well. I think he measured in around six foot five of the combine. Mm-hmm. That's what we'd like to see, but he's not a particularly big guard. Right. And I think that leaves no. him open yeah. on both sides of the ball to missed opportunities, whether it's finishing around the basket, whether it's defending certain guys up at the top of the court or switching on to certain guys, it leaves him open for a number of negative outcomes, depending on the position he has to play. I understand all of that, but he does have the frame that says to me, I think he's going to add a little bit more size. And I definitely think he's going to get stronger, which is something we talk about all the time on this podcast. That's going to happen for him. So I think some of that stuff is fresh away. in age too, which I don't know if yep. a lot of people know that he is like the age of most young sophomore. A lot of them. Yep. And then, and then on the, the jump shooting side, again, we talk about comfort level in terms of the variety of shots that you're willing to able to, and then ultimately make on the court. I'm seeing him make jumpers off the catch in the corners. I'm seeing him set himself up for shots on the wing. I'm seeing him take threes above the break and transition. I'm seeing him step into some mid-range looks. I'm seeing him hit floaters. I'm seeing some craft off of a screen and roll set to where he's playing his man on the hip. Very careful in terms of his timing going up towards the basket and ultimately shielding the ball away from an offender so that they're not able to block the shot. Like I'm seeing all these different things with his scoring yeah. game, Maxwell, to where I'm just like, I get that the shot may not be there as as good as we want it to be from the jump, but he did also hit nearly 36% on his threes on a decent volume. He did convert well in some of these other areas on the floor. I think the touch is there. I think the mechanical approach is there. I'm I'm just really struggling to find things that I'm pointing to and being like, that's going to be a detriment through his career. Yeah, so I, I would say where I'm at is is I agree with you. I think a lot of this stuff is is good. I, I love that you mentioned like the angles at the basket with the ball and protecting it. He is phenomenal craft at the basket yep. as far as just the angles he takes, how he can contort his body and still maintain control over his touch. I, I love it. Um, I really like the playmaking. I think that he's very good at passing with both hands, which yes. is something that I like a lot out of his live dribble. Um, I think if you want to have like, really high-end outcomes in mind for him that's a good thing to point to um with buffkin i would say where my biggest reservation are is my biggest reservations are is that i don't totally love the blend of shooting and playmaking at this point and i do think there are times where he gets a little bit of tunnel vision i think i know where you're going with that yeah explain that for the audience i think i know where you're going but somebody yeah else not. I, I think there are times where he just decides like i'm shooting on this possession and I think that okay. regardless of whether or not the quality of the look is there, he ends up taking something. Um, and I also think that that kind of 
turns into his passing a little bit too, where there'll be plays where he's like, I'm going into the paint and I'm, yeah. and I'm doing it to set somebody up. And then that read isn't there. And that's why the turnover number is a little higher than it maybe should be. Um, but that was the biggest thing on my deep dive that stuck out was like, I feel like he's a capable passer. Um, he's able to throw a wide variety of passes, but I, I think he does predetermine a little bit. And I don't think he's the most flexible in terms of his decision-making as the play is developing in front of him. Okay. So I think he can do it. I just yes. don't think he does it all the time. So, so that would be my counter is that, that, that cadence, that cadence is something that can improve totally, especially in the pick and roll game. But I, yeah, if, if it's not there for him completely out of the gate, he's, he is a little bit more predetermined that could certainly bite him in the rear and, and certainly, you know, have a coach, have a coach pulling their hair out on some possessions and be like, we need to re-examine this play on, <laughs> in the film room tomorrow and see where might have you read, where should have you been looking, you know, how should have you led this with your eyes? What should have ultimately developed from this play? I, I, I get all that stuff. His ball screen defense. Is it the best in the class for a non wing? Like, is he the best guard pick and roll defender in the class? I think he actually might be. I'd be curious where you're at on that particular area of his defense. It's really good. It's definitely really good. I will say this is my other nit that I want to pick with Kobe Buff. Oh boy. Okay. I think when he's up to the task, it is. I think he okay. is way too comfortable to sag and go under screens on guys that he should not be doing that to. Okay. I think there's a lot of examples of him guarding a shooter. The ball screen comes and he's like, I'm going under and he shouldn't be doing it. Um, Completely fair. I, I think that is like my big critique of him as a ball screen defender. I think when he wants to, and he wants to fight and his ability to catch up and cover ground, even after he's clipped, he doesn't die the way you would think he might. Like sometimes he gets hit pretty hard and he's thin, whatever. But I do think he always works to recover. I love how he gets his feet back under him. Um, but that would be my big knock is I think sometimes he's just way too content to go under when it does not make sense to go under. Sure. Sure. Which is, which is a fair point, but yeah, I think, Certainly when he is engaged, you know, the, the way that he's able to flip his hips, you know, play different angles, recover all of those fun aspects that are important to ball screen defense. I think he hits the majority of them, if not all of them right on the head. And it's why you put all of these different aspects together. I feel very comfortable about him as a point guard long-term in the NBA. I think more so than I did, you know, a, a few weeks ago before I did the most recent dive that I did. And I have him at 15 on my board. And I, I've kind of said through and through, you know, my board's done. I'm not necessarily changing my rankings unless I literally have to remove players because they're withdrawing and I got to put some new guys in there. Fine. But for the most part, my rankings are done. And to be clear, I think you and I would probably feel the same way when we get in these situations about trying to figure out who's going to go into what situations and who a team's actually going to take. It becomes less about the number that we put next to these guys on the board. And we need to look a little bit more past that and ask ourselves, well, we may like all of these other players more than him. And if we had an opportunity, we may want to take them, but if we're in X team's shoes, why are we not looking a little harder at this guy and what his particular skill set could be for us? And I think that's more so where I'm trying to go with the Kobe Buffkin discussion. It's not that I'm talking myself into this need for me to 
propel him up like five or six more spots on my board. It's more so when we're talking about some of the guards in this class, Mm -hmm. we don't really hear his name coming up in these top 10 conversations. And I really Mm -hmm. think, I really think he needs to to be there with the Anthony Blacks and the case of Wallace is when I'm going back. That's just my personal opinion. I don't know if you have anything else. Yeah. I think it's possible. He ends up there in a redraft scenario. Okay. Um, I think to me, it's just like the upside of somebody like an Anthony black, who's just like physically bigger, even though their measurements are actually ended up being kind of like closer than you might think. Like Anthony black measured under six, six, uh, barefoot. Um, I think the idea of like, if Anthony black can become a solid three point shooter and their volume wasn't actually like that far apart, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it was a little bit apart. Uh, yeah, I take that back, but uh, yeah, like the idea of like if Anthony Black can become like a, yeah a decent three point shooter, he brings so much more to the table just with his size uh, and physicality than Kobe Bufkin's probably ever going to be able to bring. Like he just doesn't have that big of a frame. Um, I do buy this shooting because like he was a really good free throw shooter both years. Um, I think with what he can do as a pull up shooter, I'm I'm pretty optimistic about it. Um, I think he's like one of those guys that I want playing in a different cadence and sort of playing off somebody like Beal in the backcourt. Like if we're committed to Bradley Beal yeah. being the shooting guard, to me, I look at Kobe Bufkin and I'm like, he actually he offers is like a lot of modern what I want combo, next to Beal. Yep. Right. You look at like a like a Derek White, and like that's like yep. the kind of guy that that Kobe Bufkin can be. So yeah, I just don't know that I'm wild about going for that where I see somebody like Anthony Black who could just be more of a two-way force if he's yep. shooting it. So yeah, and, and I, 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 I just I just like the upside of the other guys that I have in that range more. We we would we would definitely if we're picking one of the guards again, if that's what we're doing, you didn't list them, but if we were, I, I definitely think I would go Anthony Black over those other two names. Mm-hmm. We didn't really talk about Case and Wallace. You may very well get into him in, in a little bit. Yep. I know it feels like we spent a lot of time on the Wizards, but we're in we're in the point where a lot of these names are going to keep coming up for these yes, teams, so yeah. we might as well just stop and talk about them when when we can. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to hit on potential targets for the Wizards of Pick 59, and then we will jump over to the Orlando Magic. All right, and we are back. So Maxwell, potential targets for the Washington Wizards. At pick 59. This is our break. Yeah, we love it. Sicko territory. Sicko territory. Who you got for me? All right. Um, so I'm going to go off of the ESPN best available board. Okay. Because I, I know what our back end of that range looks like. But I think this may be a little closer to the consensus. This one's a bit of a reach. Number 51, our guy Seth Lundy. That's right? the first name I have Seth written Lundy down. Is, yep. He would give this team so much of what they need. He gives them a floor spacer. He gives them some length, and he gives them some defensive nastiness. He's a guy I absolutely adore in that range. Um, another guy I think could be interesting, just touching on their defensive problems, is the, the, it's the, the you've got to be patient pick of this range, which is Jalen Clark. Okay. Uh, who's who's in this range on the, the SPN? I love it. Currently. Uh, just because, yeah, like he's going to give somebody that you can play next to Beal. I do think the shot, like, I don't know that I buy the shot, but it improved so much that, like, I think he might be okay at shooting. I, I like his decision-making and, and craft with the ball. Um, so he's in that range. And then um, Curry Alexander's in that range. I feel like they've got so many combo guards, though, that, like, I don't know that I want to give him another one. 
If uh, Trey Alexander lasts all the way to 59, we've, yeah. and, and I know it's, it's like you said, it's two different boards. You wanted a different spin on mm-hmm. this exercise, but man, man, that'd be, that'd be lasting a while. Yeah. The other one I'll throw out. Let's do, uh, you know, let's do Julian Phillips. He's in this range. I'm pretty sure he's going back to school. Cause he's like, it seems like he's pretty active in the transfer portal, but why not just swing on Julian Phillips? Like if you're picking at this point, you're the wizard. It's like, why not just take the guy who's really fast and jumps high and has long arms and hope that a year with the go-go gets him moving. So what's fascinating about Phillips, there's, there's a number of people I could point to and they'd look at us and be like, you're throwing out Phillips at 59. He should be going way sooner than 59. But you and I have kind of been of the opinion all year where we're questioning how draftable he is this year. And you kind of said, we think he's going back to school. I think he's going back to school. But I've questioned all year about just how much offensive impact this guy has. And if he's not going to be able to hang his hat in anything in any one particular area on offense, other than just cutting to the basket and hoping that somebody can get him the ball, set him up for an easy look at the rim or, you know, a, a transition run out where he's filling the lane. If, if what you're giving me on a night to night basis in the NBA is an action where you're moving without the ball and hoping to get an easy look at the rim somewhere, that's not going to cut anymore in the NBA. I'm sorry. It, it's just not, you need to give me something more. Or your defense has to be that freaking spectacular. And I know we all talk about, well, you know, in the Bahamas, he locked up Grady Dick and Grady Dick couldn't even get a shot off. We, we are well removed from that game at this point to where I'm sorry. I just, I just, I think I need a little bit more from Julian Phillips on the offensive side to fully buy into, you know what, this guy is just this nasty of a stopper where he's going to come in and, and be this guy who's actually playing a role worth his weight in the NBA versus just like getting four, six, eight minutes, whatever the case may be here and there. And that I think you're in the same spot with Julian Phillips. Yeah. Yeah. I, he's got to find a way to score in an NBA game. And like, again, like he's one of those guys where he was a really good free throw shooter, but just like was hesitant to shoot three. seemed a lot more comfortable operating around the elbow. Um, he wants that like, post-up game. He wants that, yeah, like, that turn which, away like, from the post. There were nine guys on Tennessee like that. Josiah Jordan James, Nakamwa. Like they were all just like, mm, how about I go, how about I go to the elbow? And like who's giving him those shots game. in the NBA, though? See, it's, it's nobody. Funny, like that's not a thing that bingo. guys do in the NBA anymore. Bingo. And, so, and it's also yeah, like it's, if you're if you're any sort of, and I consider those elbow shots to be like mid-range looks. If you're any yeah, sort of are. like mid-range operator, you have to be worthy of those touches. That's not some coaches are not bringing you into the NBA to, you know, your rookie season, we're going to call X amount of plays for you to run this set at the elbow. And you're a rookie. And it's, it's because you don't really have much of else of anything like that. That doesn't happen in the NBA. It just doesn't, you need to fit in around the other guys who are going to command the lion's share of the offense. You need to be able to fit in in a meaningful way. A la, you got to shoot, you got to hit jumpers of some kind or else, you're just not going to get minutes early on in the NBA. We've seen we've seen enough examples of it. We see it play out, you know, in the regular season for these teams that are trying to compete for playoff spots. We we hear it talked about enough in the playoff spots. Shot coach spins over the box of one. He poked the bear on social media the 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 other day from when we're recording this. But I I, I yeah would I don't want to get too angry. I don't want to get too carried. Yeah, no, you need to be able to shoot. And, and the thing is too with Phillips is like his frame is like narrow so he's always going to be on the thinner side 
So like he doesn't have the physicality of like a, a Jordan Walsh, right? Where like I, I bring those guys up in comparison to each other all the time. Because like they're yeah. both defenders, good decision makers, don't really have a way to put the ball in the basket. But with Walsh, it's like that guy's going to be more ready to screen. He's going to be able to comfortably guard more players. Where Julian mm-hmm. Phillips is like, you're pointing to his best performance is guarding Grady Dick. And like, no offense to Grady Dick, but like that that's not like a common body type of player in the NBA where it's like, oh, great. You can guard Grady Dick. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, that's not that's not what a team is looking for when they draft you. So, and by the way, I'm not I'm not trying to dump on Julian Phillips long. No, I, I, I just do think, think it's a realistic conversation about like how front offices probably view a guy who is like real thin and had an effective field goal percentage of like 43 or whatever, 44. I was off by one on my guess. But yeah, he's he just doesn't have a way to score right now. I think the touch is there and I think there's sure. room for him to develop on that side of the ball. But he has to show that he is more developed on that side of the ball to be drafted in a much higher spot than where he would be. This Like, I think best case scenario for him in this draft, yeah, 45 to 60, like best case. Mm-hmm. I think if you come in this year, I think Julian Phillips, at least out of out of the gate, a lot of people are trying to talk themselves into like late first round grades on him, you know, get that guaranteed money. He's not that guy right now, goes back to school. Maybe he can become that guy. We'll see what happens next year. So you brought up a few interesting names. Mm-hmm. I also wrote down Seth Lundy. I wrote down Landers Nolly for a lot of the yeah, same reasons sure. that you said about Seth Lundy, except the different dimension with Nolly is I really like his shot making ability when he's run off a spot, like he that waved, stop yeah, and yeah, pop, yeah. that baseline fall away. Love those shots that he can hit. And then we know about his three point game. We know that he can guard twos and threes buy into the wing defense. I wrote down Kobe Brown. Okay. And yeah, I'm not sure. sure that Kobe Brown will actually be available at mm-hmm. 59. If I was a betting man, I'd say he's gone anywhere in like that 45 to 55 range mm-hmm. um but if he would be available you know another one of these stretch forwards has some face-up game to him wouldn't be doing nearly as much of the post-up stuff that he did in missouri but would be a guy who i trust to hit spot up shots i trust him going to the basket i don't love him defensively but i also don't hate him defensively i think he's got good length i think he's got a good, good instincts on the glass has good toughness to him and an underrated decision an underrated quick decision maker as well so they're they're just given some of the i get some of the flaws but there's also just enough to like to where i will draft him regardless um Mm -hmm. and then the last name i wrote down who is really interesting i wrote down jalen martin out of the overtime elite because whether it's him or somebody like jay-z and gortman what they proved maxwell at elite camp is that they do belong playing professional basketball somewhere and i kind of already had that feeling coming in but i do think they solidified themselves as legitimate legitimate two-way candidates i don't know if they would get any sort of meaningful nba role or how many games they would play i i don't know the answer to that question in terms of how many games that actually suit up what i do know is that I think they're primed to get real opportunity in the G League. And I think there's a good chance they actually become real G League performers Mm -hmm. and they could have legitimate chances at making headway in their sophomore year and and, and getting a better contract going into their second year in the NBA. So that's, I I wrote him down. I think he would give them another dimension on this roster that they don't, they don't have that same type of transition outlet. The Wizards don't, that, that, that a Jill and Martin would be able to provide them. And if more of the shooting stuff comes around to complement the transition game and the defense, 
I think he'd be an interesting piece long-term. Do, do either of those overtime elite guys who aren't named the Thompson Twins jump out to you in a particular way before we move on? Um, I think Gortman is like closer to being ready in okay. a sense. Like I thought I would he agree. was like the, the more polished of the two. I think if I was going to take a bite on one, I might lean Martin just because the body, the, the position that he plays and Gortman's long, like Gortman had six, like six, 10 wingspan. wingspan. He's pulling like, out the Donovan Mitchell measurements. Yeah. Like Gortman is a guy that I think has like probably a better chance, but it's like, I still, I, I still think there's more value if I hit on Martin. So I yeah. think I'm a little more interested in swinging on him, even if he's a bit more raw. Completely fair. All right. The Orlando Magic finished with a 34 and 48 record last year. They currently hold the 6th, the 11th, and the 36th overall picks. Their depth chart is absolutely freaking fascinating. You have two guards in Markel Fultz and Jalen Suggs who are playmakers and defenders, but not necessarily shooters by any stretch of the imagination. Then you have Franz Wagner, Paolo Bencaro, these two jumbo forwards, wings, you know, primary, secondary ball handlers, spot up scores, pull up scores, however you want to categorize them. They're both sort of kind of very similar players. Then you have Wendell Carter, you have Bull Bull in the front court. You have whatever the hell Jonathan Isaac is. I was going to say, I think people never even talk about him now. Like the, he just gets glossed over. Which I, yeah, I just, I just don't know how to talk about him at, yeah, at this point, weird. to be honest, it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you have Cole Anthony, Caleb Houston and Chuma, Okeke with the pending free agent, Mo Wagner. We will see if they bring back Mo Wagner or not. But no real crucial decisions to make from a free agency perspective. I believe this is a team that will have some cap room to spend if they so choose to do so or if free agents want to go there. But we are draft focused. We will keep it that way. Maxwell, top needs, in your opinion, for the Orlando Magic heading into this draft? Guard positions. Like... (laughs) It's it's pretty wild that you've got Jalen Suggs and Markel Fultz like being your primary playmaker. Sanford knows that like they can sag, and this is not a great shooting team in general, like toward the mm-hmm. bottom of the league in percentage and attempts. Um yeah, like Cole Anthony is probably like your biggest threat to shoot a pull-up three on this team. Yeah. That's not great. Um Yes, they need more of that. They need more playmaking. Like the ball just doesn't move all that well. Um, so even if I'm not taking guard, I, I, it's kind of like a prerequisite to get somebody that moves the ball for me. And I do sneaky think they need like a real center on the team because they've got a lot down. of size and length. Like they do not have a real center on this roster. Like, cause I, I'm not confident in Bull Bull being that. Mo Wagner is like solid, but like doesn't, feels pretty replaceable to me. Like, like we were saying, like in free agency, yeah, maybe they bring him back. Maybe they don't. I would assume they do just because his brother, but you don't know. And then like they've got Batadze, which I, I'm kind of losing hope in him at this point. But yeah, I, I think a true big shooting at the guard spots and then just shooting in general. Like if I can just get guys at launch and make shots, I'm happy. Yep. So I wrote down, I wrote down shooting specialists. I did write down if they can find a two-way wing in this range, that'd be great. And then I also wrote down size at the center position. I didn't write down guards just because I feel like, regardless of the criticisms that you and I may have about Fultz and Suggs, I think that's still the combo they want to figure out. And and Cole Anthony, I think that they're still trying to figure out where they want to go with those three guides. And and I don't, 
I think if they upgrade at that position, I think it's going to be through a trader for agency. I don't think it's going to be through the draft. I would agree. And I think that's like kind of how they should handle it. Like, I don't yep. think you want to reach for a guard just to do it. And then potentially just have another guard in the mix that is like young wants to play and you don't really have the minutes for it. Cause like they ran into a situation like that with RJ Hampton where like when he was like on this team and like, just not getting any time. Like you don't, you don't want to have like four young, young ish guards that you don't have a lot of opportunity for. And I will give sucks credit. The volume was down this year, but he did shoot like way better from three. Like he was a three point shooter is a rookie and this year. Like it, it looks better. So the size at center node is mm-hmm. the most fascinating one. Yes. Yeah. Because maybe not at six, but at 11. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah, yeah. There's a guy we both like who mm-hmm. I think I would be incredibly happy if they took him in Derek Lively. Yep. I just don't think they're going to do it. I, I Why really not? don't think they're going to do it. Just because of the shooting? Because one thing. Okay. So here's the thing. I, one thing I kept putting in my notes about Paulo last year was I think he, like, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, the shot's got to get there, whatever. And that's still true. He played very well with a lob threat. In Mark yes, Williams. he did. And I think that, like, I, I know Lively, like, you know, not the most you, physical you, you mean You mean those double drag sets that Coach K just refused to not call, oh, like, 20 times in a He row. loved those. <laughs> loved Wendell Moore coming off those double drags. It's time for another one. No more double drag. Get Jeremy Roach coming off one of those. Uh, but yeah, I I think that like that's something that works with Paulo. And like if you want him to be comfortable, like he pairs well with that kind of a guy. I think Franz could work well with that kind of a guy. Yep. And like they just haven't had that kind of player reliably on their roster yet. They don't. They have they have underneath the basket Wendell Carter, who yep. still kind of wants the space or do some funky stuff mm-hmm. out of the post. Bull Bull is yeah, he can obviously he can catch lobs, can, but that's not what he wants stuff. to do all the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm still not sure he's like an actualized like good and I I don't know he he. When I was like going through film, like I I like binged a bunch of these teams a while ago that I knew that we were gonna talk about. In the Magic, I feel like I have the most players I'm still just like thoroughly confused by of any NBA team. Um, but yeah, I, I so why not Derek Lively? Just because you don't think they would do it because he fits their whole thing. With like length, I think Paulo and college prove that he fits with this kind of a big man. I don't see a reason why Franz couldn't. What it would be your reservation with them doing this? There's just some stigma in the air about the type of big man that Lively is going in the lottery. And I just I, I don't agree with it. I think yeah, if I an NBA either. team needs Let's size and athleticism <laughs> and rim protection, I think they should absolutely do it. But there just seems to be this conversation that someone like Lively or even our guy who isn't a true center is not 7-1, but someone who can have, share a lot of those characteristics and be someone like that in time, Leonard Miller. There, there just there seems to be this, we, we got to swing on guards and wings and, and players who can control the game from the perimeter as long as we possibly can before we run into this run on, you know, big men. And Mark Williams, Mark mm-hmm. Williams did end up going, you know, in a very similar range to, to where we think Lively can go, but it still even took a, a while for, for him to come off the board. And we saw where, you know, fourth in blocks, Mr. Walker Kessler ended up going in the draft. So I, again, I would love if they spent the 11th pick on Derek Lively, because I think at some point 
they're going to need someone with his skill set. The problem is, is that I just don't, I don't have the confidence they're going to do it. You, you seem to be a little bit more confident in something that could happen. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing with Derek Lively that we're all forgetting is like how much upside he has. Like, I, I feel like he is. Yeah. The like, shooting stuff is real. Yeah. Like he, he took threes in high school. He made like almost 30% of his threes based on the data that we have in high school. Like, I, I, I don't know. I it's it's very odd to me that like he played this very narrow role at Duke. And part of it was like he he was wildly uncomfortable out of the gate, right? Like he was super, super timid, um, not very assertive as a the, the lack of strength, I think, like, really killed him the most. Yeah, but it's and some, it seemed that it scared him. And I think yep. we might deal with a little bit of that out of the gate at the NBA level, too. Um, but this guy is like crazy bouncy. For a guy his size, I think he has a good handle. I think he's a good passer for his size. And I think that like he's a jump shot away from being like a very dynamic big man. And I just I don't know. I I feel like more than any other player, he gets talked about in very narrow terms when we're often just kind of ignoring the fact like, hey, he was a really good shooter for a player his size and his age at one point. I, I wrote down Hawkins. I wrote down Jet Howard. I wrote down these guys that we've talked about for some of these other team preview pots and guys who we don't need to get into at length. And and listen, if if that was the pick, if it was one of those two guys at 11, I understand completely why they would do it because they also just need shooting specialists around, you know, those jumbo playmakers and Palo and Franz. And then when you throw guards like Fultz and Suggs into the mix, these are all guys who can either put pressure on the rim or command a certain level of gravity in the mid range or some of the mid post or high post areas to where you need shooters spaced off of them to where when that ball kicks out, you got to trust the guy on the other end who's making that shot. Like I, I I get the whole dynamic and, and even with a player like Hawkins or Howard, it's really fun to watch those guys because you can run them off of so many different screen actions. You can get them involved in secondary ways. And it's just, it's, it's a different wrinkle to the offense that maybe an NBA team on the other end isn't necessarily game planning for because they have to worry about Paolo and Franz first and how everyone works off of what those two guys do well. So I think a lot of that stuff's really fun. But man, yeah, I, God, I, I want them to take Derek Lively so bad. I, I just, So out of, out of the two shooters, so who would you prefer? Because Eileen Jett just because like the ball movement, like playmaking. Stuff. I also like, I, I genuinely think Hawkins is like, I, I was texting you when I was going through his film, like, the Jordan Hawkins pick and roll tape is kind of scary. Like he does not really look for anybody else. That's not really going to be like what he's asked to do, but I think with just getting anybody else who moves the ball well on this team is a big positive, which is why I kind of lean jet out of the two, even if he's a, a worse defender. So I also lean jet Howard. Um, I, I think a lot, I think the defense stuff has been overblown to an extent as it has with a guy who I wrote down for pick number six, Bryce Sensabaugh. I, I think it's been a little bit overblown. I think some of the at-rim stuff has been overblown. I get that he only took register, what was it, 46 shots at the rim this season as mm-hmm. opposed to like 331 overall field goal attempts. Yeah, I get that that's not what you want for a 6'8 guy. I get that you would also probably want a 6'8 guy to rebound a little bit more often than he does. But I would think of Jet Howard more as a six foot five guard who just happens to be six foot eight, And because he has that extra size it sort of offers him a little bit of leeway as opposed to someone who is six, eight first and foremost, who needs to be doing X, Y, and Z to leverage more of his physicality and his size. I think that's how I would think about Jet Howard. And if you do think about him in that way, 
what he offers as a movement shooter, as a spot-up guy, as a secondary decision-maker coming out of DHOs, coming off pick-and-rolls. I think all of that stuff, because he's six foot eight, adds more value than what Jordan Hawkins could give me on the margins. I think Jordan Hawkins is clearly a better movement shooter. He is the best movement shooter, in my opinion, in this class. He is an offensive dynamo in himself. He has great range from, from well beyond the NBA three-point line. But we have all these different questions about how is he going to hold up on defense against multiple positions? How is he going to hold up when he's run off his spot? He has to make a play for somebody else. How is he going to hold up in the same way, finishing around the basket at a high level? If he if he doesn't turn the corner and get a step on the entire defense and somebody's there to meet him at the basket, what does that look like? There are all these different questions we have about Jordan Hawkins where we can point to a specific strength, and that's his main strength, but there are a bunch of other areas where I'm not as concerned about Jet that I am about Jordan Hawkins, and it sounds like you feel the same way. Yep. Yeah, I would agree with all that. Okay, so number six. Number six. We talked about number 11. The other names I wrote down for number 11, I did put Koulibaly down because I, mm-hmm. anytime we get after 10, I'm just going to write Koulibaly in because I think he just deserves to be mentioned there, playing one of the most important positional archetypes that we have in the entire NBA and continuing to show growth game by game by game. And then I wrote down Kobe Buffkin as well in case they wanted to get a little cute. With, with the guard spot. They want to throw a different, different wrinkle in there. Those are the names I wrote down. Were there any other names you had down for, for 11? No, those are the big ones that jumped out that I wanted to go over. Okay. And Bryce, so, if, if Bryce is there, I, I yeah, I'd take Bryce too. Well, I wrote down Bryce for number six. Yeah, I'd so you make your case for Bryce at six because that's like, it's a little rich. It's a little rich for me. So this guy as one of the, off, he wasn't my first choice at six, by the way. I want to make that very clear. But I just I put him in the mix. This guy as as an offensive dynamo at the wing spot, doing quite literally every possible thing you can ask for him for a shot making perspective. If he is your third option, at times fourth option, playing off of two guys like Powell and Franz, boy, are you putting the other team <laughs> in a bind? Like, how do we guard all of these guys? It's a lot of size and rebounding, too, among those three. A lot of size, a lot of rebounding. With Bryce, you get all of the versatility from a shooting perspective that I outlined for for Jet and and Jordan. No, it's not quite the same. Like He's not going to run nearly as many miles as somebody like Hawkins does, but he can shoot off movement. He can relocate, (laughs) set, rise and fire. Obviously, a really good catch-and-shoot guy, someone who can create his own shot, from those mid-range areas and another guy who he may not have gotten to the rim again as many times we would have liked, but he wasn't as bad of a finisher around the rim as, as some people give him credit for. And there are definitely ways where he can leverage his six foot six, 235 pound frame into creating more free throw opportunities and getting the line a lot more than just settling for one of those poor looks around the basket. So if you're taking him at six, you're making a big bet that the playmaking is going to drastically improve from what it was at Ohio State. And I don't think it was, I don't think it was as bad as some people want to say, but he clearly wasn't as opportunistic off of some actions as he should have been as a passer. That needs to change in a more drastic way. And he needs to be a non-zero on the defensive side of the ball. In other words, he really needs to hold his weight there. He needs to be able to prove he can guard a position, you know, 
he will improve over time as a team defender in terms of working off the ball, but that is a big area of concern for him. So if he's going to be sliced up and those kinds of actions early on in his career, he needs to prove that he's a non-zero, a non-zero in some form or fashion on the defensive side of the ball. But to me, I don't know if you have more glaring negatives outside of those two that I mentioned. To me, the list of positives is incredibly long, especially when you're working off of two legitimate top tier options in Paolo and Franz. And if that's the guy you're putting next to them, oh shit, I'd be a little concerned if I was another team. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I think my concern with that lineup is who's guarding what positions. Yep. I think that's where it gets real dicey. Um, yeah. What, what would, how, I don't know. I, I think that becomes a real, real concern. Um, because like we've, we've talked about this before, right? Like Franz guarded twos at times last year. And I just don't know that that's what I want Franz doing all the time forever. No, I agree. I agree. I, I, um, it, it, do, it does become a little tricky from a positional perspective, but if you continue to expect Paolo to improve defensively, which I do, if you continue mm-hmm. to expect Franz to improve defensively, which I do, if it gets to a point where Bryce can kind of be the player who you sort of hide on someone defensively, and then you have either of Suggs or Fultz covering at the point of attack, it becomes a little easier. If, if especially you if you need, get lively at eleven, especially if you get lively <laughs> at eleven. If if mm-hmm. you need to cater to a defensive structure in which you know Paolo or Franz, one of the two guys, doesn't improve defensively, and it becomes like two or maybe even three guys that you're kind of struggling to figure out where they guard, kind of like the question you're asking, then it becomes a lot trickier. But it becomes yeah. easier to picture if those other two make the improvements and leaps defensively that I expect them to make. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. I think it's definitely interesting. Um, I, so where I kind of go with this is I go BPA. Um, so my board as it stands is um, Victor, Scoot, they won't be there. Brandon Miller won't be there. And then it's like Whitmore, Amenasar. Amenasar, yep. And... Whitmore is the one guy that I kind of have pause with, with this team, as much as I love Whitmore, um, just because the ball movement issues that this team has, where like, I'm almost tempted to lean more Taylor Hendricks in that spot. I have, I know so I have a SAR and I have Taylor issues, Hendricks but... written down along with Bryce. Those are my three names. Yeah. Cause I think with Whitmore, just like the fact, I, 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 I know that you would help them defensively quite a bit. Um, and again, like I think some of the stuff you said about Bryce kind of applies here, right? Like when he's your third option, like he's going to look great. Um, but he is a guy who stops the ball quite a bit. And I think that'll get better. I, I, I do. But um, I just think out of the gate, it's it makes everybody a clunky fit. Whereas with a team like Detroit, I think it actually works pretty seamlessly um, just because they have other on-ball creators that are a little bit better. Um, does does taking Taylor Hendricks though put you in the same spot defensively it, that we just talked about? It does. It does a little bit, but I think the fact that I feel better about him as a defender changes that. We're like, okay, I'm obviously not getting the same level of shot creation and shot making. I am, um, but I am getting another floor spacer. He's helping me out with my three point shooting. He does move the ball quickly. I think he's underrated as a ball mover. And then on defense, he's going to be thin. And I actually kind of like the fact that I can sort of hide him on some threes and things like that out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Let Paul handle the floors. 
And again, Francis Cigar, the twos, which I said I don't want him doing, but I think that it is a little easier just because he can also defend. I, I know we keep bringing up Franz guarding the twos, but you also have to think about if that's the lineup you're trotting out, the amount of size and length that's on that court at one time, that court shrinks, right? It becomes much yep, easier yeah. for everyone to help each other out and sort of cover their own gaps. So while there's windows of opportunity where you have this big six foot 10 guy who might not be able to, to, to cover every single guard who's running off of all these different screens and, and working out his pick and roll actions. You, I, I get that there's some hesitancy in terms of the amount of ground he would have to cover, but at some point that player is probably running into an area on the floor where there's two to three other like bodies, you know, guarding in that area towards yep. still makes it tough for that guy to ultimately score. So I think because that's the lineup in which Franz would be acting as the two guard, like he has this year, I think it becomes a little bit easier to talk yourself into him taking some of those matchups. And that that's my argument for buying into somebody like a Taylor Hendricks. If that's who you really want to go with at six, do you think, the Magic need to leave this draft? If they're going to make both of those picks and not trade one of them, do you think they need to leave taking a wing? I think they do. I, I think, think they, they need should. to take a wing yeah. with one of the picks. Yeah, just because like, they're hard to get, right? Like, yeah. And, and that's like the whole thing with like, oh, you don't want to take a big that high. It's because like wings are hard to get. They're, yep. they're expensive. You have to overpay for them if you're going to trade them. A lot of times you have to overpay to keep them if you get a yeah. good one. Like that's just the way the league is. So I would I would really try to get one of them with at least one of those picks. Potential targets at 36. I'm very curious Ooh. who you wrote down for this what about portion. The, what about Ben Shepard? That's the first name I wrote down. Boy, we're we boy, we are like two <laughs> we are two peas in a pot. Yeah, I mean, just a, a knockdown three-point shooter that you can run off a of movement, who can guard smaller guys well on a team where you've got 80 bigger guys. Like, that's that's a really good fit for him, another good decision maker. Um, yeah, that's that's one that jumps out to me. Um, I wrote down I wrote down as well Julian Strother for yep, basically like a lot of the same reasons, just in a, wing, a wingier body. I wrote down Trey Alexander as yep. a fun combo guard they can put in this system and, and your hesitancy. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to say on the combo guard front, what about Amari Bailey too? Amari Bailey could certainly guy be like someone kind of who they can target. Quite a bit if you want to. I don't know that he actually has more upside than Taylor Hendricks. I actually think or Trey Alexander, I actually kind of like Trey Alexander better because I think he's I like much, him better much well. better off ball player and defender. Um, but yeah, I, I would love Trey Alexander here. I think that would be a really good one. And then how about OMP? How about OMP if they want to take a swing on a project in the second round? This this front office that, mm-hmm. if for nothing else, they draft into size, length, and positional versatility, why not yeah. take a swing on somebody like that in the second? It's interesting. I think I think some of the, the on-ball stuff scares me a little bit, but again, he's just going to be a play finisher, so... <laughs> I, yeah, I don't hate it. Like, yeah, because if OMP shoots, he's a guy you play in a playoff game. Like, he is. And yeah, this team just buys into so many different funky projects. I think like, he's going to be gone. I think so many teams in the back end of the first I, round need size and length. I think he's, I think he's going in the first. Oh, boy. I really do. Matt Maxwell, Maxwell's scorching hot take that he sort of uncorked um, on our mock draft, our, our mock mm-hmm. positive podcast. But all right, we will take one more break. When we come back, we're diving into the Detroit Pistons at five. And 31. All right. Detroit basketball. 
the part of the podcast that I know. Shout out to Molly over in the overstated NBA group. Anytime I talk about the Detroit Pistons, got to shout out my girl Molly. I know she's waited a long time in this podcast to get to the meat and potatoes and where we want to go when we talk about the Pistons. We, I said it at the top, a lot of interesting roster constructions that we were discussing on this show. 17-65 and 65 record last year, but Maxwell, they have a lot of fun pieces in place. They have the dynamic backcourt when he's back and healthy of Cade Cunningham and Jaden Ivey. You still have Boyan Bogdanovich in the mix. You have the, the, the most fascinating collection of frontcourt players across the league. And Marvin Bagley, James Wiseman, Jalen Duran, and B. Thu. You have Isaac Livers hanging out there, like mm. the forward spot. To me, the need is very simple. Wings, wings, and more wings. Because you know who the best backup wing is on the roster? It's that guy I mentioned at the tail end, Isaiah Livers. I, and and yeah. downplaying Isaiah Livers, we got to do better than that from a depth perspective. We do, yeah. Best, and, and I won't say that, but the, the most crucial position in the NBA. And that that only gets better organically with the names they have on this roster if Cade Cunningham, in fact, is bulking up to be the player we think he's going to be and he can prove he can play more mm-hmm. free and, and operate guarding some of those bigger wings, not having to live guarding smaller players in the backcourt. But outside of that scenario, in my opinion, they have to leave with one or two really good wing prospects. I'm assuming you feel the same way. Yeah. I think that's the biggest area of need for them. Um, yeah. It, it's, uh, they don't need any more bigs. That's the biggest, the biggest takeaway here is this team does not need any more big men. Uh, so they, so, so you're telling me they don't need Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks. I would, I would not go the, I would not go that direction. I would not either. I, yeah. I, I, I comfortably, I would not either. So that leaves me, Outside of me just being absolutely you know what? The, the conductor of chaos, you know, second in command to mm-hmm. Tyler Rucker and throwing Bryce Sensabaugh in the mix. Like outside of that, to me, there's really only two names that we're talking about in this spot. Okay. So that um, unless you have another that would. Enter I was going to say, I, I don't hate Hendricks here because I think Hendricks at least faces the floor and gives you some more size. Okay. Um, Because like Duran is not that big. Stewart's not that big. Like. I mean, Jaren's long, but I've long suspected he's not 6'10". Um, so, yeah, I, I think just getting the extra length with a Hendricks makes sense. Um, and he shoots. So there's that. Um, he's going to open things up, make life a little bit easier for Jaden Ivey. So I don't hate Hendricks here. Look, man, to me, it's Cam Whitmore and Asura Thompson. And it's, yeah. it's, it's choose who you are more comfortable building with mm-hmm. long-term. Now there's been some fascinating discussions and no ceilings about what the Detroit Pistons should actually do with this pick. I got to be honest. I, I do not love riding with consensus because usually when mm. you ride with consensus, I, I come from a little bit of a betting background. Usually when you ride with consensus, you are on a one-way ticket to loserville. Mm-hmm. However, I just agree so much with the Cam Whitmore fit. I this is too. one of my favorite fits in this draft. It's I think it's because I have a different vision for what I want Whitmore to be long-term than I think some people believe he should be to justify taking him with a fourth or a fifth pick. 
And I think it's more so not necessarily a conversation about the player's skill set, but more so about the value behind the pick and what you should look to select with that high of a pick. Do you feel like that's leaking into the conversation around Cam Whitmore? Because that that's how I feel about it. Yeah, I I think I think that's definitely fair. I think with Whitmore you just have to look at like a baseline level of like, what does this guy do well? Yes. And generally it's just the guys that can do stuff well that end up developing the things that they're not as good at. And he's a really good catch and shoot player. He is a really good downhill driver and he's a really good defender across multiple positions. Yes. Um, He's one of the scariest defenders we have in this draft class. And I feel like no one talks about it. Yeah. All. And I feel like his shot blocking, like throughout the year, I was like, oh, he doesn't block as many shots as I thought he was. Oh, he doesn't really offer any weak side rim protection. And then, like, I looked back through the numbers saying it's like, oh, no, the numbers were like better than I thought they were. Like, he also just doesn't let guys take shots. That's part of it, too. Yeah. So, like, I, I, I think there's a lot to him as a defender. Um, and yeah, with how good he was on catch and shoots and, and even how comfortable he was, I, I completely agree that like he, ta- he's a big, a big surveyor. And like, we talked about how, like, we kind of like that with Asar. There's a difference between Asar surveys and how it more surveys. Yeah, I agree. All right. I've caught the ball. Let me take it. Well, give me a minute here. Let me, let me see what's <laughs> going on. So Whitmore, yeah, he can be a little bit slow on the draw, but I think the fact that he showed he's comfortable taking like pull up jump shots when that's not his bag and he was hitting them uh made me really confident in what he's going to be as a shooter at the nba level and i think that he's going to be able to adjust to the speed of the game um and i think even if he is a guy that doesn't fully adjust ever and he's a little bit slow in terms of how quickly he reacts he's so strong and athletic that I think he he's going to have a bit of a leash. So he's going to be able to get away with it and still get to his spots. Do you want to know what fascinates me about a player like Whitmore? Let's see. Usually when you study a prospect like Cam Whitmore, who is this, we, we can now say that he's six foot seven, 235 pounds. This man is an absolute freight train getting downhill, crazy athletic, explosive first step. One of the better two foot leapers we have in this class. I, I, I get it. He can dunk over you. He can finish through you. But normally when we evaluate those players, that's almost exclusively what they want to do. And they rely so heavily on that physicality to do everything for them in their scoring game to where we don't see more of the polish and more of the finesse in other areas. Cam Whitmore actually wants to show that polish and finesse in those other areas. Mm-hmm. And he's more than willing to build out his game from being exclusively a downhill driver, someone who, if I have an inch of space, I'm going to still, I'm going to try and take that space. I'm going to try to get downhill. No matter how the defense is trying to wall me off, I'm going to try to do what I want to do. And we've seen examples of other players who are clearly above a tier physically than some of their peers in college when they come in and they're able to put up points and, and put up production and they make a living off of that. But when they try to play that same way in the NBA, it does not work out in their favor. I come back and I think about Josh Jackson all the time. He was one of the most gifted athletes in his class and in, in, in terms of explosiveness, athleticism, size, strength, but he wanted to play bully ball all the time and it didn't work for him. Cam Whitmore, while he does play a, a fair amount of bully ball, and I, I would want him to. I would want him to leverage his physicality. It's not the only trick that he has 
in his bag. And that gives me comfort behind him developing into a legitimate three-level threat as opposed to somebody who doesn't believe in these other areas of his game. And because he doesn't believe in them, he won't build them out to become more of a wing versus just like a, a power driver or forward kind of player. And that's that's what fascinates me about Whitmore. I'm, how do you feel about the, the little soliloquy I just gave? I think it's fair. I, I think it's, I think it's on the nose. Cause that's like the Josh Jackson comparison was interesting. Cause like the uh, big knock on him was decision-making where, you know, he had a higher assist rate, but that guy turned the ball over a lot. A lot. And like yep. with Whitmore, it's more just like, he just, the assist numbers don't exist. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a real, a real thing. And I do think that he's a lot more advanced than somebody like Josh Jackson, as far as like the, the shot diet is it's, it's just better. Yeah, it's just better, and I, I think he has better touch. He I agree. He, he has yeah. an he has he has a real shot. Real... Like the shot is is I could not feel more differently about the two of them as jump shooters coming out. Thirty four percent on on decent volume coming out, and I think it's only going to keep improving. I think the mid range touch is real. I think his his ability to play out of the post, both as someone who's going to turn over a shoulder or look to lean into someone to draw contact, versus fade away and go to more of a fall away shot. I. I I buy the post-up game, not not being a regular weapon for him, but something he has in his bag. To me, I, I look at all these different areas in Cam Whitmore's game, and yeah, the decision-making is the clear thing that, that falls apart for him a little bit, but at the same time, he's one of the youngest players we have in this draft class. He missed a crucial, important time coming into Villanova with a program in, in, in a system where he could have certainly had more room preseason to, to get a better feel of what everyone does offensively, where everyone likes the ball and, and how he needs to operate within that sort of structure. Now your counter to that could be, well, Villanova's offense was just dog shit sometimes. And that yeah, I was I would say, say, you know what? He didn't have the Frank Mason that a, that a Josh Jackson had. So, so to that, I would say, you know what? There are a lot of other guards on that roster who also stopped the ball and dribbled the air out of it and, and didn't want to make decisions with it. So maybe, maybe that wouldn't have changed. Maybe it's just Cam Whitmore sort of trying to fill in and, and play what everyone else on the roster wanted to do. I don't know. But the point is, I, I get that it's a weakness. It's an absolutely fair weakness to point out. But I'm looking across the board at so many other strengths. And when you bundle them together under the package of, play finisher with his physical tools and with his upside to still improve in more of those on ball areas, albeit maybe not in a high volume, you know, I'm going to run 20 pick and rolls in a game. You start to just become very enticed with what he can bring to the table now in the short term around a bunch of guys who do create within that offensive structure for others and what he could potentially blossom into if given those reps around guys who certainly know what the hell they're doing to teach that type of offense to him. So the Cam Whitmore stuff, I get all the concerns. I'm just not buying into them as, as much as some, some other people are. I'm buying into the natural talent and the overall upside. That's why we we don't have to talk about a sore at length. We already did that earlier in the podcast, mm-hmm. but that's why I would take Cam pretty comfortably over a sore. And I think you probably feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would. A sore is a really tempting upside bet here, but I, I think Whitmore fits what they do really well. He fits a massive, massive need. There's an easier path for him to be on the court right away. And, and like we mentioned, like there's just a glut of bigs and other than Stewart, none of them shoot. 
So it's just like, all right, well, if I've got Ivy, who's not quite there, it is a shooter. And then I've got Durin or Wiseman or whoever out there. And then I've got a Sar who like maybe probably isn't going to shoot right away. Like it just, it can get really kind of cramped and ugly on offense. And then I think that's stifling everybody's development, or at least with Whitmore, I know that he's going to be a willing shooter who can, who can knock some down off the catch right away. I agree 110%. Last but not least on this podcast episode, potential targets at 31. I know who my favorite target is as we're recording this podcast. His name is still very much so in the draft conversation. My favorite target is Jordan Walsh for the Pistons. Ooh, okay. Because if he develops accordingly on the offensive side of the ball, he is everything this team needs from a defense perspective to cover up the holes of everyone else on the perimeter defensively. And not only is he covering up the holes of everyone else on the perimeter defensively, he is also, as we mentioned, someone because of his size, his frame, his length, he's going to be able to guard force. I, I fully buy into this guy being a one through four defender in the you NBA. Too. I believe in the slashing game. I think the spot up shooting will come around for him. I think the comfort, the comfort level is there. He's gotten to a point now where we saw it at the end of the year for Arkansas. And then even in the combine scrimmages, he was willing to take those shots take them, yeah. and step into them. So I, I think enough offensively is going to be there to where he's not a complete tire fire on that side of the ball. And to the point where you'll even be able to point to some pluses for him offensively. And if that's the case, I got zero concerns about anything he's bringing to the table defensively. I still think even his body's got plenty of room to fill out. I think he's going to get stronger. This is a guy who, if if you can buy into him and you can get him at 31 in this draft, if you're a team like Detroit where you don't have, you know, grade A expectations, this is absolutely a guy I would take a flyer on. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're getting him on, like, a less guaranteed deal, you kind of have to do it, right? Like, the kind of guy it. where it's like, he's one skill away from just being a wildly complete guy who plays in playoff games. Yeah. Um. I would love for them to target any of like the wing potential wing fallers. Um, so like I wrote down Dariq White. If a Chris, I was gonna say if like a Chris Murray, but Dariq is the one that like really kind of piqued yep. my interest because like I, I know the I know the injury concerns are are probably a pretty real thing for a lot of teams, but like the one thing he can do that we know he can do is provide nuclear shooting, and like even if he's limited and looks a little bit more like Isaiah Livers, like. Hey, you need you need another Isaiah Livers. Like, if that's worst case, what he is, and he, and he's more of just a knockdown guy. Um, but his best case could be again, you know, if, really if everything breaks right for yeah. him within the next two years, he was a guy. I keep bringing it up. He was number three on my preseason board, and I get yep. that that failed spectacularly for me to this point in the cycle. But that was the type of talent you saw pop on the tape in high school. Yeah, certainly, and and I think that the defense it can be really bad at times but i think with the context of the feet it's like well at least he like put up metrics like at least he made some plays on defense and there were times where he fundamentally was like doing the right thing and like stopping the ball in transition and like just doing little stuff where it's like all right like i i think you might end up being all right here and if he is and he's that kind of shooter and then he gets some bounce back he's able to get downhill more then again we're talking and, about and you're really getting him at 31 yeah yeah and, and like the big, the, the big like reservation, which is why I'm like a little bit lower on some of the super optimistic outcomes with him is he's never moved the ball particularly well. Like even in high school, he was not a good passer, like bad assist turnover ratio. Doesn't really just see the floor that well. But if I'm 
getting him at 31 to be a guy who defends and shoots threes and then gets downhill and has some bounce to him. Like, I love that. I, I absolutely yeah. love that. If he falls, like you got to take him. You, you, you've got to get value at some point. The other names I wrote down were two that we've already mentioned, Ben Shepard and OMP. They're going to mm-hmm. big, big, win- big winners, big winners of the combine uh, all around. Honestly, they were, they were my two biggest winners from the yeah. combine to, to close out the podcast. Maxwell, you wrote, in my opinion, the most in-depth NBA draft combine recap that exists on the internet. Currently, is there anyone else who you say, yeah, these were these guys were big winners of the combine, or this guy was a big winner of the combine to where the audience needs to be very aware they're going to go higher on draft night than we would have thought of a, a few weeks ago? Yeah, I think Brandon Pajemski is like for sure going high. Like, I, I think somebody is going to swing on him. Like, I, it's probably going to be an analytically inclined team. Like, I, I because the Grizzlies have a pick. I was going to say right? Memphis at 25 probably makes sense. I, I feel like it's going to be one of those teams where, like, the numbers are just so overwhelming. It's something that, like, so this is going to take him. Tristan Vucevic is another guy who I think is, like, thoroughly on the radar now. Like, I think a lot of people had him in the second round for a long time. I was really slow to, to kind of see it with him, but did my deep dive on him the other day and he's just so good at scoring that I think someone's going to take him. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, but he's sort of firmly back on the map. Uh, we touched on Lundy earlier. Um, I think the other guy that like, I think for sure is an NBA player, but maybe not this year is PJ hall from Clemson. Okay. Because like he's he's sort of a four or five tweener to a degree, but I think he's really athletic and he really moves. He came out of the gates at elite camp, freaking scorching from three. Yep, he is like whenever I watch Clemson, like he's a guy like the assist numbers aren't crazy, but like it seemed like every game I was like, oh, that was a real nice pass from PJ Hall. Um, I think he's a guy that is probably going to go back, but I think and I think people are going to forget about him. And I think he's going to be out of top season, like preseason top sixties, and he shouldn't be. Uh, I think PJ Hall is like because because be he's got he's got some nasty to him too. He's oh, not just a spot up nuts. shooter. Yeah, yeah, motor is wild with him. Um, but yeah, that was that was the other one. But I feel like we we touched on a lot of the other big ones. Everybody knows him. But Pods is like the guy that didn't come up on this show that I think is is like firmly entrenched himself in the first. Pods, so so Pods top twenty five. Man, I think so. I do. So is um, it so so like I'm not sure I'm there with him. I like personally, like I, I still have some reservations, but I put him at 26. I, I got there. Okay. I, I I so I had many reservations, like mm-hmm. literally like two and a half weeks ago, based yeah. on what I had seen towards and the I was end higher of the on him than you were at that time. And now but you coming you out and some other people told me to go look at what he did the first half of the year when he probably wasn't as gassed and just yeah, kinda, yeah, yeah, yeah look and see what he could do offensively. And then you watch him in the combine where clearly he's coming off of some, some great individual workout time and then pre-draft prep. And man, he was sharp. He was sharp. Mm-hmm. The, the touch is I report. It's still insane. The touch is the most insane aspect of his game. Like that, the, the types of floaters and runners and shots that he hits off the bounce. I can't, I can't tell you how they You're go like- in. They're like stupid shots that like you kind of can't defend. They're like, like cir- they're like circus floaters that I'd expect I'd expect my fiance to be taken out and not my my wife. Oh my yeah. goodness! Wow, that blunder at the end. Of the yeah, oh. that's how tired I am. They're, uh-huh. they're like these circus shots I'd expect Anna to be taken out with me in the in, in the parking lot. We're playing a game of horse, but like he makes yeah. them work in an NBA game. Yeah, like for a guy who like 
doesn't really separate that well. It's like a, the perfect weapon is to be like, I shoot a floater where the ball is like 25 feet in the air at one point. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's how you deal with like not being able to separate, not being like the burstiest guy. Um, and, and then the playmaking craft, the pick and roll game, like the, his vision, mm-hmm. his awareness, his poise, it, it's all there. E- even if he's not a starter, I think he solidified himself as like, yeah, I, I have a great chance to stick around as a top eight guy for, oh, for quite a while. You know who the other combine guy that we got to touch on is a Sunogo. Because yeah. I think Sunogo is Sunogo's like a, going. he's for sure getting drafted guy. Yep. Um. So, so two weeks ago, I would have absolutely pegged him as a guy who was going back to school. Wouldn't want to have him in my top 100. Then you watch him in the combine games after you had heard all the reports about his his work ethic his mm-hmm. i, I want to improve defending in space i want to improve my spot up game didn't really get to show the jump shot stuff at the combine but he showed all of his other skills and he was one of the more productive players at the combine that even during like the the, the games like no one was bringing him up like we were talking about amani Bates yeah. for like the 60th time and we weren't talking about what dama sanogo was doing being like a double double threat and it's like <laughs> well, the, that, the way that, he like, runs the floor crashing yeah. the glass interior scoring the, the passing the, threat, the, the, the back passing, door yeah. the pass on the back door to Lundy, like unbelievable um i also think he's a big time he's a winner guy right like i feel like he's one of those well, guys you can that, like, certainly make that argument the tape after this year. And, it, and it's just like yeah like he's he just gets it done he, he does what you need him to do he defends i i think and like he did some more rim protection stuff last year like i think there's yeah some defense that he kind of didn't even show this past year. And I do buy him in space and he's a, he's a former soccer player and those guys always have good feet. Good feet like, yep. I, I don't know. I, I just think with how he carves out space, how yeah, hard he plays, how he can pass. And the fact that we both kind of think he's going to shoot it a little bit. Yeah. You draft Sunogo. you draft Adama Sunogo. So I have Sunogo at 56. I think right he was now, around like 40, 45 for me. Okay, so you got him up even higher. Okay, mm-hmm. well, there's some names that I'm going to have to probably weed out in between like that 45 to 56 range if I'm anticipating correctly. Not a ton. Um, I think, actually, yeah, not a ton. I think the only guy who I'd say has a good chance to go back would be Judah Mintz out of Syracuse, not to necessarily r- ruffle any feathers So I did on the Judah Mintz front. but So, yeah, so I did... Um radio today for a uh the espn affiliate in in syracuse with uh brian higgins and the caller who was on right before me seemed to intimate that they believe all the smoke is that everyone locally seems to think he's going back um that would be so much fun if he goes back with starling and that's and chance like westry i love chance, chance westry. westry pre-college and then he played like 12 syracuse basketball coming back yeah yeah, he's still got um. Yeah, you, Benny Boatwright isn't he still there? Right? My no, I'm not thinking of the oh, right uh, USC. Who am I thinking of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Benny Syracuse. Williams. Benny Williams. Benny Williams. Yeah, the Benny Boatwright USC call that. That see that that goes to show how long I've tried to be in mm-hmm. the scouting game. He's, and shout out he, to Ryan Boatwright, Aurora, Illinois' own. Uh, there you, there yeah. you go. Got to give got to give him some love from the hometown. So, yeah, I I think I think Mintz is probably going back. Fair enough. There's there's plenty of conversation that we will need to get into in our big boards, and there there will be podcasts for that. That closes out our show. So really, the the teams we have left are the top four, the big boys. We got to talk about Victor's fit in San Antonio. 
We got to talk about what Charlotte needs to do. We have to talk about Houston and Portland and how they fit into all this mix. There are some fascinating conversations we're going to have for you on next week's episode of Draft Deeper, but that's going to close it out this week. If you aren't subscribed to this podcast feed, make sure you do so. No Ceilings NBA, wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at No Ceilings NBA so you're up to date on every piece of content we're putting out podcast-wise, YouTube-wise, Substack-wise over on NoSillingsNBA.com. Make sure you're subscribed to that. Free 99, baby. And as for us personally, you can follow us on Twitter at DraftTeeper and at Boundboards, respectively. But until we meet again on this podcast feed, thank you all for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week.